Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor Robert Downey Jr. You know, good old Robert Downey Jr. is back for a second time, and his career has gone quite well since his last appearance, all the way back on episode five of Off Camera. Well, now it's our 200th episode, and Robert is here to remind us that great conversations should be unconventional, surprising, and sometimes just downright weird. Check, check, and check. Since the last time he was here, Robert's Iron Man legend has grown exponentially, thanks to the massive success of Marvel's Avengers franchise and the recent release of the final installment, Avengers Endgame. But if we rewind the tape, Robert's journey on the project, like director Jon Favreau's, started at a low point. As he tells it, we were two people who had a film we were passionate about come out the same weekend and bomb. His was Zathura, and mine was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Well, their mutual comeuppance led to a creative bond and a big brother relationship. As Robert explains, if that kind of synergy happens when you're doing a movie, it's going to be great. End of story. Finding people who encourage and legitimize his creativity has been a theme for Robert, who, despite moments of personal turmoil, possesses a deep-seated work ethic. Growing up, he was Bob Downey's kid, the son of a groundbreaking counterculture filmmaker, whose view of the industry was the following. Anybody can act, few can direct, and nobody can write. Talk about humble beginnings. Robert joins off camera to talk about quitting and not getting fired from Saturday Night Live after a year, why he thought and still thinks he could write a better script than William Goldman, and the great life advice he got from Figueroa Slim in The Clink. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Robert. Oh, hi. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you back here. Thank you, darling. I can't I believe it. it. I know. It's been six years. I don't want it to start because I don't want it to end. <laughs> we started this. Yes, we did. Well, yeah. I actually want to bring that up. I've thanked you privately for doing this show, but I want to thank you publicly because this is the 200th episode of Off Camera, which... I never imagined when I started it. And what people don't know or may not remember is that when you agreed to come do this the first time, it wasn't even a show that was on TV. It was just, I was just putting it on the web. Yeah, it was and, an idea. And I called you and you said, yes, I'll come down and do it. There was no publicist. There was no agents. There, it was just, sure, I'll come down and do it. But I want to thank you because you legitimized the show and you know, in a way, you also set the bar for the kind of guest we could get. So mm. I don't know if that was good or bad. It's great. I wanted to ask you, on that note, if there was ever anyone in your career when you were young that sort of legitimized you or said, you can do this. Yeah, I'll go out of context. I'm shooting a movie called Natural Born Killers. Right. Oliver Stone idolized the guy. He was in this really interesting part of his career trajectory too, where he had been kind of, you know, hadn't hadn't missed a line drive in, in a while, and he was making this kind of statement about media and stuff like that, and so I felt like I was playing an aspect of what he hated. Right. And so I would come up to him and run stuff by him, and I don't, I've never really done this since, but I'd like come up to him in accident, and I'd be like, Oliver, I've got an idea for this scene. I think it's gonna be riveting. And he would, engage with me in a level of kind of sincere amusement, but also that was the first time where I felt like someone was like, yeah, 
my vision is going to include your uh, ideation and your participation for this character, and that was massive. If I go backwards a little bit, I had this amazing apprenticeship with uh, Richard Attenborough. And while he was more old school, he was there with me for every second of it. And I remember at one point, we're about to start shooting uh, Chaplin, and I was so on fire, I came to him and told him I had rewritten the script, <laughs> and we would be shooting my version of his biopic now, and he got so hot. The, the indignation, understandably. Now, what was the strategy there? Or were you just, did you just The strategy it? was I understood the truth, and it didn't matter that I was in my mid-20s and, and completely out of my mind. I had some talent, and uh, everyone needed to take a knee, and I was going to show them how to correctly do a genre of film that I had zero experience in. So I didn't get that with him, but I got everything else. And what was really legitimizing was, A, just being cast. Sometimes the best thing someone can do for you is give you a job. Yeah. But once you're kind of in the mix a little bit, then you're looking for a different validation. And to me, it's always, it's this thing that we've had for a while. You know, folks probably don't know, like, we... We enjoy working together regardless of the medium, and we're in a bit of a dialogue about our own existential dilemmas or whatever. Sure. So this is a natural yeah. offshoot of showing back up and, and checking in. It's validating to have people say, uh, yeah, what's that thing you're thinking? Let's build on that. Right, and I think that that's often the thing that, that when a director has that confidence or they let people into the process, then things can be great. Yes. Making space for others. Right. To me, it's demonstrative of whether or not you are sane. If you are mentally sound, you have made space for yourself enough that you can then get into that Venn diagram where now we're becoming this third thing and now cool stuff happens. Right. I think the grosser experience of most entertainment, business, all this stuff is, is it's a lot of turf wars, a lot of energetic supposition that my status means we don't need to interact, you need to do as you're told. Right. Or you need to do that thing you do, which is even worse. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Well, those two examples, Richard Attenborough on Chaplin and Oliver Stone on National Born Killers, mm -hmm. what was the difference between the two of them that that was so pronounced that when I asked you that original question, you immediately went to the yeah. Oliver Stone version. We'll go to Oliver Stone because he is someone who's a bit of an island onto himself and has always had a vision for everything he's done. Loves actors, would, has no interest or ability in that department. So it's about, it's about coalescing the uh, energies of other people and trying to fit that into his vision. Attenborough, because he was an actor first and foremost, I think I responded to him like I was getting, I went to RADA. I literally went to all the education, the incomplete education I had in my mid-20s. By the time I was done working with him, and it happened over a long period of time because the film financing kept getting dropped out. Oh, really? Yeah, so I'd just go. So you'd rehearse and rehearse and rehearse or prep? Yeah. I, you know, you'd be like, oh, darling, I'm sorry. We're still waiting to see if Carol Coe can get the additional $8 million. And I'd be like, great, I'm going to Pittsburgh. There's an expert there. And it was this great thing, and it was a gift, looking back on it, that it was delayed so often because I had to do all my own homework, and then I had to come prepared to interface with someone who had achieved absolute mastery of their craft.
Did you have an understanding of Attenborough and his career enough to be either intimidated? <laughs> not enough to not tell him that I was rewriting the script. <laughs> you know, let's I want, let me temper this with a little bit of reality. You know, which was no clearly, he was his code of loving tolerance was the most exceptional example of that that I've ever seen. That is the hubris of youth, right? That that you go in going I. I I've got everything I need here to rewrite your script. And yeah, we so, should have shot my script. I just want to say for the record, we should have shot my script. <laughs> Here's the weird thing, too. Do you notice this, dude? This is a lifetime ago, yeah. over half a lifetime ago. Yeah. I still have the exact same conviction, sight unseen. I don't even, I've, I, I have no side-by-side -side comparison to William Goldman's script. <laughs> Back in the day, it used to be like, well, Bill Goldman is on safari, but he's going to be faxing in some pages. I was like, I don't need to see Bill Goldman's pages. I'm in it. Right. I am fucking Chaplin, Dickie. And you'd be like, right. Well, anyway, we should take a look at them. <laughs> you know, whatever. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Because to do what you do well, you, you have to have a, a certain amount of confidence that, you know what I mean? Like, you yes. have to go hard in the direction you feel. Only now, I, I would assume you're in a position where when, when you want to rewrite a script, they say, well, let's see what you got. Listen, I'm going to answer that question. What's important right now is you know that I am mirroring your uh, physicality. That. Which, by the way, I don't know if I did it consciously or not. Son of a bitch, now I lost my rhythm. <laughs> a lot of life for me is, is monkey see, monkey do. Whether it's developmental or once you're in a situation that's very stressful, you know? Like right now, I don't think, I think if you took either of our biometrics, we'd, yeah. all be, we'd be in a really sweet zone. Yeah. Because we, we have a love for each other and we also have created an ease by iterations of doing creative stuff together that we always like the result, but more so we like the process. Whenever you engage with a new group of people in a process, there's always this thing of it's, it's like you're going to a new school right. a couple times a year. Yeah. Whatever part of my personality was set, it was probably fractured enough to be uh, uh, useful in a creative medium, but also... There was a work ethic born out of desperation that I would not wish on an enemy, but it was something that I, uh, I was outfitted with. So no matter how you slice it, as I was learning and going along and making mistakes and noticing how, uh, uh, you know, Michael Apted or John Hughes, how they would operate, you go, oh, I like that. That looks like it would feel good to be able to do it like that, you know? Yeah. Well, it makes me curious, like, when you come on a set, is there this thing of, with you, of, I'm not going to see how I fit in, but I'm going to push the envelope and see how far I'm allowed to take it? Well, it's like, you know, every day, every time is different. Uh, in my family, we call it the rainbow reset button. It's, what does that mean? It's just being able to say whatever my assumptions are about right now, comfortable or otherwise, can I just go, can I... Can this be a fresh, uh, can I be, uh, what do they call it, a beginner's mind? Right. Can I be open? It's really difficult, and the more stressed out I think anyone is, the more they try to bring their own worldview to bear to soothe themselves and to try to fit in. But it's, th this question to me is the only question that, that I feel I need to keep asking myself. Because sometimes you read the room and you go, this is a new situation. I don't need to make myself small, but I need to be part of an aggregate kind of messy floating dilemma that will hopefully land somewhere without stressing anyone else out because I think I know what to do. Right. Other times you go, all right, I have to push. 
I have to push the discussion on this narrative into somewhere that's going to be effective. And that can be done through blocking. It can be done through innuendo. Sarcasm worked for a while for me, but that burns out pretty quick. And ultimately, I think it's, are you, can you get quiet enough to actually connect with the other flailing human beings that are actually trying to do something valid together? Yeah. I wonder if you still go through that insecurity when you have to kind of walk into those situations, or even if it's magnified now because of the expectation that comes along with what you've achieved. Okay. Well, look, I mean, if anything, what I've achieved is uh, continuity. It's like a one-armed bandit, you know? I assume when I walk on a set, things are going to be pretty fucked, either energetically or technically, or but the limitations, rather than being a pissed off teenager who's, you know, everything is the man and really what it is is me giving myself an excuse to fail but it not being my fault. If I just go, okay, so this is the one-armed bandit, it will never come up all gold bars. Never. So, depending on how it comes up, how do I fit in and accommodate and blend with that? And the crazy thing too is sometimes small groups of people making most of the creative decisions um, can either be the best or worst thing. Like my, you know, obviously the ultimate example having wound up this uh, Marvel contract lately is, is John Favreau. Right. I mean, from the minute I engaged with this guy, I was kind of like looking at a, a big brother who's younger than me, a kind of a mentor, mentee. We were also just two people that had a film come out on the same weekend that bombed that we were very passionate about. His was Zathura and mine was Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Oh, so you both had sort of had a comeuppance at the same time. Right. Everything to me led to this moment, aside from meeting my missus and beginning to uh, cultivate a personal life that, that bled over into a creative life. I mean, she's, you know, she's the real linchpin to all of it, but in the, in the stuff that folks would know about, it was this belief he had in me, and then he gave me enough rope to hang the whole project time and time and time and time again. And pretty soon you start going, oh, the reason I'm in this partnership is they're saying, I'm going to see what happens if I trust you implicitly without letting you run amok. And I know that you need a little bit bigger of a sandbox than maybe some other people, but you still need a sandbox. So I'm gonna keep defining and reminding you of what the sandbox is. And this is the power of, uh, of synergy and relationships. Yeah. And if that happens to happen and you're doing a movie, it's gonna be a great movie. End of story. So tell me a little bit about that first Iron Man film. Because I feel like one of the reasons that character is so indelibly engaging is because you're indelibly engaging. Just being right. in a room with you is that odd energy that, that is exciting and strange and yeah. funny and witty. and It's a bit of a head scratcher. I mean, I guess I'm asking for that experience of yeah, yeah. what it was like to read that script for the first time. Yeah, I probably thought it was garbage. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but someone said to me they were watching my screen test for Iron Man or something like that, and they said, That's, that was the direction you should have gone in. No, the direction was I was playing it a little more straight. There weren't a, a bunch of funny lines, and I was probably like half out of my body hoping I got the part. And then in executing the film, we were finding this tone that was really somewhere between mine and John's and Kevin's sensibilities. 
um, Gwyneth Paltrow coming in and going, oh, testosterone fest, can we talk about what's true north for, the, for actually what the reality of these relationships are? And John would be like, that's right, everybody stop, listen to her. So there was this great sense of each of us being corralled by passing the talking stick and deferring to each other, like any good uh, community. Yeah. And the amalgamation of all those little moments of thoughtfulness and open-mindedness are suddenly what this character is remembered for. I look back and I go, I don't know how I did that. I don't think I was in a good mood that day. Um, I, I thought, I think I was really tired. I think my hair looked ridiculous. And yet, the great thing about cinema, particularly black and white, is you, <laughs> You forget all of that as the viewer. You finish, you finish the story on what really happened by viewing it and hopefully enjoying it and, and, and feeling like it's speaking to you in some way. Right, but I would think at that time, because um, you had to, that was probably the last time you had to had audition for anything, right? <laughs> How's that mix? It's half pretty water, good. I said I wanted half, half coffee. coffee. <laughs> I'm sorry, ask me the next question. I promised myself I'd do this. Go ahead. Yep. Is this dioptic? No. What were you thinking? That's anamorphic. Ah, fuck. <laughs> All right, last, don't you touch that. All right, here I go. Last question. Okay, so what I wanted to know is, had you lost your confidence a little bit going into that, like after Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and after sort of like you said, sort of needing something. Yeah. Did you feel like you'd lost your confidence a bit? No. My confidence was lost uh, several years uh, following that. <laughs> but I was on this, the run up between a couple things that happened between, I want to say, uh, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and... Um, uh, Zodiac and yeah, a couple right. movies leading up to that and then it came out like where were you in your mindset like around that time I was just I was my missus and I call it grind monkey grind you're just out there you are doing it you are living eating sleeping breathing it you are just young enough to rationalize the imbalance that you're allowing to occur and you're focusing on it and at the same time you're having a blast because you feel like, oh, this is, this is what I was hoping my uh, creative life could feel like. So did it feel like a rebuild, kind of like? Oh yeah, come on dude, I, I had shat the bed so clearly for so many years that, um, and I had kind of lo honestly lost interest. Like I did Chaplin and I was like, wow, maybe not the best movie I've ever done, but great experience and, uh, and I felt that I, I had I had passed go and collected 200 yeah. bucks and that I had a really deep understanding of my craft. Now, that, just, just so I know personally, in Chaplin, were you generally like together during Chaplin? Uh, or I were you never been generally together. Really? No. So even during Chaplin, you were on the edge. Yeah, and there's nothing better than shooting scenes in Veve, Switzerland, <laughs> in old age prosthesis, while you are booming on mushrooms still from the night before. Jesus. Now, I would not recommend this to the uninitiated. But again, different time, different space, different me. As far as the coolest letter I ever got 
was, uh, I won't say where I was, prison. I got it from <laughs> Jodie Foster, and she wrote me a letter about, and this was years after Chaplin had come out, about how that was still so relevant, Chaplin's life, the precision, the dedication, the, the what he had to do to be who he was in the epoch that he was such a, an innovator in and such a, literally a genius. You can't not believe that Charlie Chaplin was a genius. Some people would say that he created pathos in cinema. So that's kind of a big deal. But um, Jody wrote me this letter basically reminding me that I, I had already gone through the motions of understanding what kind of personality would persevere in what is essentially the same hostile environment it was when he started with the same new versions of red scares and public turning against and for you and personal uh, proclivities becoming public and almost damning you. So she, she he went through all of that as well. In his own way, sure. Right. Yeah. So that was a whole other thing, was remembering like, oh yeah, what really sucks is when you live the lesson through the, the experience of shooting, in this case it was a biopic, Yeah. all the good stuff, and then some of the downsides, some of the, the pitfalls, things TBA, to be avoided. And then you blindly go and disregard all that data. Because for me, right. at best case scenarios, anytime I, I get onto a set, a, hopefully it's entertaining, it's fun. Much more importantly, hopefully I'm deepening my understanding of the human experience by the privilege of being able to play. Yes. And that means that, even though it rarely occurs, that means my, my life experience after that moment should reflect those lessons learned. Well, ideally, but you're yeah. still in your 20s. You're right. So, things, so when things finally started catching up with me being able to learn, implement, and not, as my dad always says, kid, make new mistakes. <laughs> Once I was able to make new mistakes, which was in my uh, late 30s, completely different ballgame. I wondered if while you were there if there was a certain person or a certain bit of true north that got you through it. You and mean jail it, mentors? Yeah. Well, as far as cellmates, I would say Figueroa Slim was a, was a very impactful individual. And why was that? He was just so entertaining, and, and I still quote him to this day. What was he in for? I mean, what wasn't he in for? He, he, the, yeah. He was a pimp. Yeah. And he was in that cycle of continually getting busted. But like many of us, what I loved about him was he had this projection of the man and that they got me. It was always about how society was going to drag you back into the, the, the lowest common denominator of, of human interaction, right. no matter what. And yet he was brilliant. So what I, I hear you saying is you saw Figueroa Slim, you got to know this guy and the way he saw the world and it exposed sort of some of your flaws in your own thinking. Yeah, I was basically like, we're kind of like the same, we're very similar, uh, and, and I still use it, a lot of his, his worldviews and thoughts nowadays when I realize I'm getting into that space where I'm pretending I'm a rat in a trap because it's really convenient when what's really going on is there's, <laughs> there are lessons to be learned. Yeah. All of which I've been able to bring to bear at one point or another in... Uh, in my work, in the great work. But to find a power in your craft, to do, be doing what you love on the biggest stage, and then get to a point where your mistakes or your unwillingness to, you know, Brain whatever. disease, brain disease would probably be a better way to put it. 
<laughs> made it all go away. Yeah. 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 I like that though. You did. No, I didn't. But you do lie. now. Yeah, and by the way, I was looking at an old mugshot of mine recently, and I was, I was, uh, there, was, there was a bit of a sadness in my eyes. There's nothing like getting sent up the river, but I was okay. Sometimes you know, like Figueroa Slim would say, they got me. Right. They got me because I was there to be got, and I wasn't doing the right thing, and this is life. This can happen in relationships. This can happen uh, at a stop sign with a stranger in a car across from you, you just, you never know. You know, it's, it's interesting. I, I don't understand because to be so fulfilled in terms of loving your craft and being able to do it at the highest level and, and seemingly getting great satisfaction from it. And then also, I don't know, f- engaging in behavior that would, that would jeopardize that. Because to I me, know. that was always the reward. Uh, Did you just, ever? Dude, it's, it's just so sexy. <laughs> you gotta understand this. Tell me. Everybody's a little bit nuts, right? Some people would would do things that you would think are are aberrant and be very very difficult to explain. We know who those outliers are. They're the first people that that won't make it very far if they wind up in a correctional facility and people find out what they were there to and how they, what they did to get there. But in the larger sense of things, it's just like that was my that was my life. That was a genetic predisposition, and then that was a a a signal wire that got tripped. And once you have burned neuropathways repeatedly, it's no longer a behavior, it is a directive. But I also know this, which gives me great comfort. If anybody is fucked up and they come from a fucked up family, chances are you're going to have a better chance if you get through it of pushing our society forward in some way. It's because just the way it is. You had greater you had greater adversity. I don't know. I don't know. I just know that the stats line up and show that. You know, I was reading that there was certainly a point, probably mid all of that, where you described it as your lowest point and, and that you, did, you weren't into acting anymore. And I wondered today? if you ever actually wanted to quit. <laughs> Is it today? It's today. Well, I'm here. Well, actually, guess what? You did I'm quit. here to announce my fucking retirement. <laughs> That's why you've come on. No. After Chaplin, yeah, I wanted to quit. You did? Why? Yeah, uh, I don't know because I, because it's it's fun to say you want to quit. One of my favorite phrases is "Everybody's fired and I quit," <laughs> because it really just feeds into that miasma of defeatism, which is just so cozy and fun. But is it almost taking away its power when you say it that way versus like when? Yeah. You're really, like, was there ever, ever a point where you really did want to quit? There's two things. Yeah. You're either running on fear and you're not conscious of it, or I don't want to say you're running on faith, but you're running on hope, which I used to have a big, I used to have a big problem with that principle. You're running on the hope that, that day by day in every way, things can build on each other and become more and more magical and engaging and fun. It's not the most realistic worldview, but it is far preferable yes. to the alternative. And by the way, I also, and I think I'm human, and everybody gets off on having contempt for things that are out of their reach. As a kid, my thing was, well, I wouldn't want to be one of these stuck up rich kids who's got a house out in the Hamptons and goes to a private school anyway. Has like, alpacas. you know. <laughs> 100%. <laughs> And now I live on a petting zoo. Hey 
Hey folks, let's take a break from the show so I can tell you about this week's sponsor, Calm.com. Are you struggling to sleep these days? I'll tell you, I was in Europe last week and I struggled to sleep. And I remembered Calm.com on my phone. And I gotta tell you, it's a game changer. Obviously, jet lag is a tough thing to deal with. But a lot of times, we just need to figure out how to get our brain in a calm state and our breathing in a calm state, and then sleep will take over. And if you're struggling with this, either because of jet lag or for any other reason, you're not alone. One in three U.S. adults doesn't get enough sleep. And if you're not sleeping enough, it can affect your cognitive functions during the day, like learning, problem solving, and decision making. And in my case, remembering which side of the road to drive on. Did you know that a good night's sleep is like a magic remedy for the brain and the body? When we sleep well, we're more focused and relaxed. And best of all, sleep makes us happier. And that's why Off Camera is partnering with Calm, the number one app for sleep. Sleep deficiency does serious damage, not just to your brain, but to your body as well. The sleepless are more prone to accidents, weight gain, and depression. With Calm, you'll discover a whole library of programs designed to help you get the sleep your brain and body needs, like soundscapes and over a hundred sleep stories narrated by soothing voices like Jerome Flynn from Game of Thrones and Stephen Fry. So if you want to seize the day, sleep the night with the help of Calm. Right now, off-camera listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription at calm.com slash off. That's C-A-L-M dot com slash off. 40 million people have downloaded Calm. Find out why at calm.com slash off. Now back to the show. Here's what I want to know. Here's what we've never talked about before. Ever. Jail? Oh, no, 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 no we jail. covered that. Go ahead. I want to know about the time before everything happened where you knew you wanted to be an actor. You knew that you were going to go yes. after it. You were in New York. You had dropped out of high school. Okay. I remember being in Rochester, New York. What was the year? Uh... 1980. Okay. So you're 15. I'm 15, and I'm doing a, a play there called Alms for the Middle Class by Stuart Hample. I remember riding a bike around, and I had on the headphones and the Walkman, listening to No Jacket Required, driving around uh, on a bicycle, upstate New York, Jeeva Theater, Rochester, going, this is therapy for me. I'm doing this play. The play's pretty good. Um, I'm hanging out with these old school theater actresses and people and veterans and we're, we're out of town, it's kind of exciting and I'm, I'm, I'm in it, you know, and this is what I'm gonna do. I knew that I was interested in uh, performing arts. Not because I'd been in my dad's underground movies when I was a kid, but because if you wanna talk about a real, a real first uh, validator I had, yeah. Santa Monica High School, the theater arts teacher's name was Mr. Jellison. Okay. And he taught me everything I needed to know up until the point that I met and worked with Attenborough. I also want to double back and say, because we were talking about all the, the dark, druggy, jaily, horrible stuff, which is kind of fantastic, was Marek Konevska directed a movie called Less Than Zero. Right. Marek Konevska hated the studio system so much that the minute he was done directing Less Than Zero, buggered off, never to be bothered at interacting with a major studio's take on what a movie with a message and some heart and some depth was supposed to be by the time it made it to market. 
So he was also super critical in my development because his process of getting ready to shoot something was unlike anything I'd ever experienced before. Also, when I came on the set, I think it was one of the first days of shooting, I'm supposed to be telling my dad on a, on a tennis court that he, if he could let me come stay back at the house, it would mean a lot to me and I'd run out of all my options and stuff. And it was the first time that I ever walked onto a film set and the director told everybody to stop what they were fucking doing be quiet and concentrate because what I was going to do was going to be special and it was going to be difficult and it was going to be their fault if I wasn't able to get there, basically. Really? He set it up so that I felt like, oh, this is important and now I have to do my part. So he gave you some stakes. He gave me some stakes and, uh, and he knew I was, I was pretty nutty, but he believed in my talent and, and in that moment, I had to develop a system by which I could go from zero to 60 so people weren't just standing around until I felt it, which is also critical. It's like a great chef. Uh, two most important things, sense of urgency and attention to detail. Without a sense of urgency, you're never going to be able to survive in the film industry because they're not 112-hour days until you're feeling yeah. it. They're 12-hour days. And in that moment, I thought, okay, what's my little half-assed early to mid 20 system and it was will any father and son ever really be able to connect and understand each other and five seconds later I went and I was able to, to do the scene now Mara was able to give me the space to have to come up with something that was indelibly watchable and believable in a scene by saying even though there's a sense of urgency and we have to have an attention to detail, I am stopping the world right now on this tennis court so that you can dig up the goods and bring it to bear. And I never ever forgot that. Wow, okay, well it's interesting that you got there because- Try getting back on track now. Well, I- We're off-roading, Sam. <laughs> we are, we have shifted into four-wheel drive low. <laughs> no, I think, I think what's interesting is that, you know, we see, we see the finished product, but what no one got to see was the years you sort of struggled in New York and, yeah. and how you thought you were going to figure it out versus how it played out. What I learned was that I was probably not going to be very good at making a living doing commercials. I, cause I could never do it right. I went into the audition, and again, in a fit of old, uh, um, uh, wild optimism. I, I would always go into every audition and say to everyone else who was sitting there on those long benches of, of crappy, you know, uh, yeah. chairs somewhere on Broadway, rooms. I'd say, you guys can all go home. I, it's, this one's in the bag. I got it. And would you say this with a wink or was it like full-on conviction? I said it in a way to calm myself down and right. to try to be outrageous or whatever. Something I brought then into filming many years later was right before a take where there was going to be, you know, a, a really big stakes end of day, you know, one shot only, we got to get this, it's magic hour thing. As I say, rolling, and I would say, anybody need anything from the store? <laughs> but back then it was realizing, all right, I don't fit in here. And rather than just calling it what it was, which was two years of rejection, it was a finishing school going out of adolescence into adulthood going, this is how equipped I am on one level and how ill-equipped I am on most every other level. You know, it's funny, you, you talk about how you didn't fit in commercials and you didn't go here. Um, you were on Saturday Night Live for a year. Yes, which I've been I thinking about know. that a lot lately. I really? know, I didn't even know it. And uh, do you remember your audition? I do. 
I Tell was, me about that. I was I'm, very I'm fortunate in that, that Anthony Michael Hall and I, who yeah. are, have remained close friends over these many years, and are developing projects together. We were literally just hanging out a couple days ago. Um, we were both put to task by a director, a friend of ours, to remember what, what and how did we wind up on that show and what was that year like. Yeah, because most of the lore of Saturday Night Live is people come through sketch comedy or they come through stand-up and they yeah. develop characters and impressions and they get the opportunity to audition. Yeah. But I was so curious about how you ended up in that audition. I came through the, the Weird Science Country Academy where we had, a, a bunch of us had met up on this, uh, you know, John Hughes right. films, and I was kind of like, oh wow, I had a part in that, and I was starting to get a little uh, notice, and then Michael Hall was doing all this kind of bigger stuff, and turning down huge stuff, and making creative decisions about what he wanted the next chapter of his career to be, and we become friends. Uh -huh. So he, in a way, was my first John Favreau. He was someone who said to me, I'm going to go do SNL, I'm going to get you an audition, and I bet you're going to get yourself on the show, too. And they'll be lucky to have us. So what, do you remember the audition? Yeah, I did some really dumb stuff. I, like, pulled my shirt over my head and did some sort of, like, uh, like bodega running character. Um, I did another guy, a British guy, who all he wanted to do was put a piece of tape on your head. It was it was really weird, super avant-garde stuff. And Did I you have to do impressions as well? No, I've never done impressions. I, I have some respect for people who do them. Um, it, it's a skill, I guess, if you want to develop that skill. You see how we have contempt for things that are out of our reach? I guess I'm not a really good impressionist. So they all suck. <laughs> It's all garbage unless I have a sense of it. So was it the classic audition and you're on the stage of the show and Lauren's in the audience? And If I'm not mistaken, there was some people at a table and I came in and it was my moment and I did some stuff and I heard some chuckles and there was some head scratching and I was like, well, that was kind of fun. And then a couple days later, I, I, was, I was told that I, that I would be a not ready for primetime player. And were you a fan of it before the, like, the of Belushi era? Of course, I grew up on it. So what did you think when that happened? Did you think like, no, now I'm gonna have Belushi's much. career, I'm gonna have Chevy Chase's career? No, I learned so much in that year about what I wasn't. I was not somebody who was going to come up with the catchphrase. I was not somebody who was going to do impressions. I was somebody who was very ill-suited for rapid-fire sketch comedy. I was not of that ilk of the, of the groundlings or any. I'd never been part of any improv group. So I was kind of like, wow, this seems like, this seems really hard and like a lot of work. But I would still say to this day that there's not a more exciting 90 minutes you can have, whether you are any good or not. It's just amazing. Was it exciting or terrifying? For me, being young and, uh, and kind of whatever, um, I was like, this is just a blast. Like, you're in a caveman outfit, and you're running to go from this set to that set and change into a spaceman outfit, and you, like, bump into David Bowie, who's, like, standing by a monitor because him and, and, and Lauren are buddies, and you just go, like, oh, coolest Saturday night ever. <laughs> and you go, you know? And you're like, well done, you know, or whatever. <laughs> right. So in the 90 minutes moment, you get such validation not because you're the standout guy, not because they're not going to say uh, later on that you were the worst cast member they ever had, which is another lie, but because it's such a difficult thing to try to pull off, and it's so miraculous that for 
you know, 40 whatever, 44 yeah. years, whatever it is now, they've kept pulling it off. But you get a lot of cred just for being able to even participate in that level of real-time stress and excitement. God. Do you remember getting fired? Do you remember how they broke it to you? First of all, goddammit, I wasn't fired, Sam. Okay. I don't know, what, you know, I, I wasn't fucking you fired. fired. You Not quit, everyone else fired. is fired. Everyone else was fired, and I said, you know what? You're all fired, and I quit. <laughs> uh, you know, we'll have to ask Lauren. Maybe he didn't want me back, I don't know. But I think I was off and running, and I was going to do some other movies. Also, I'm from New York, but I've always felt, aside from being out on Long Island, I've always felt more comfortable uh, out west. Right. So it's, it's I said to him, thing. I said, flat out, Lorne, can we move the show to California? Because that's going to work better for me. And by the way, you want to read this draft I did for Chaplin? Oh, no, that's five years from now. <laughs> <laughs> well, so you were, you were what, 20 or 21 when you did that? I mean, you were young. Like, oh, you were so doing off-Broadway, like, early. Yeah, 16, 17. Now, here's something else. Speaking of work ethic, they used to call me Nirvana before grunge was popular. Really? Because I was the first person at the theater every day or early afternoon if it was a matinee. I had to get there about an hour and 15 minutes before showtime. I just stretch out and then usually by the time they came in, I was sitting on some half-assed like stage pillow meditating. More like wanting to be seen pretending to meditate and they used to say, oh, there's Dan Downey's uh, in Nirvana again, and they'd come in and throw on their makeup, and then we'd go do the show. Well, guess who got an agent? The guy who Nirvana. showed up first. <laughs> yes. Is that how you got an agent from a play? Uh-huh. Do you remember the play? Yes, it was called Fraternity, and there was some young gal who I wound up disappointing by going to a big agency later, and she was critical, and I don't remember her name, but I probably owe her an amends and all that stuff. I owe a lot of agents amends. I'd like to do it all right here. <laughs> Fuck you. I win. <laughs> and oh, by the way, oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so in those days, did it feel like there wasn't a million people trying to do it or did it? Well, it's such a period piece now looking back on it, you know? Yeah. And there was a lot of talent and a lot of people who were miles ahead of the pack. It was a little bit uh, compartmentalized and who did what and all that stuff, but what I did get was by the time I was 18, I knew a little bit about uh, musical theater. Yeah. I knew a little bit more about drama and comedy, and I knew something about how to boldly face rejection and try to go in and stand out from the crowd. Not because I'm such a passionate artist, but literally more because like, I need a job. I need a job and no offense, but my skill set is kind of limited in where I really interface with what people would consider real jobs. And I've had a fair amount of real jobs. So did you, did you wait? tables? Did you? I'm never good enough to be a waiter. I was a busboy. I worked in shoe stores. I worked in nightclubs. I worked at a, um, what do you call when you make pressed sandwiches? Uh, panini. A panini a joint called right. Cafe Bianco. I worked at the Thrifties in Santa Monica that I'm sure now is a Rite Aid or something. Oh, yeah. But I want to make a big amends to Thrifties because while I was technically involved in inventory, <laughs> <laughs> Me, Lino, and Reed were running a scam. This was before you really knew how to, to track your, uh, 
your cash register transactions. So there was a little supplemental income going on. Yeah. I didn't have sticky fingers, but there was a system in place, a system of thievery that I was aware of and I was part and parcel to. But I want to tell you, I made up for it with, again, my work ethic, because when I was doing the, the ice cream, I think it was five cents, 15 cents, 25 cents for a triple. It was a yeah. great deal, by the way. It was a great deal. B-level ice cream, basically generic fit for human consumption, but not great dairy products. My, both my forearms smelled like milk for a year. <laughs> That's how invested I was in giving you, the thrifty's customer, the very best scoop du jour. Were you poor? For a time? Sure. I mean, I'm, I just certainly had, I have no recollection of ever really making ends meet uh, or being in a family that was, that was functional monetarily. See, your parents never were what you consider well off. There's times that we would be flush and then there's times we'd be broke. How does that mess with you now? Like, do you think you still have the mindset of... I do not have poverty mentality, no. You don't? No. You managed to break that completely after the third Iron Man. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's more of a thing where, first of all, I, I don't know, but I would imagine it would be harder... It's just hard, it's hard to adjust to anything that isn't what you're used to. So for me, what was great about that was I'm lazy by nature. It's very motivating. There's no free nothing coming. So get it together and make something of yourself. Yeah. I think we share that. I think that oxymoronically or ironically, my laziness has fueled my work ethic because I will work so hard not to have to work for somebody else doing something I don't want to do. Yes. That, that I'm glad you said that because we were talking about all this other stuff and yeah. influences and all this. All I want to do, if I can henceforth is I want to try to do my I want to try to do my thing yeah you know you found a way to do your thing well you done all right yeah no I know I'm fine but what I'm getting at is the the growth pattern hopefully is always moving toward being able to go into that place where like I don't know because then you have to ask the question all right you seem really confident what is your thing and you go hold on a minute so I have to dig deeper and really say what am I willing to push up against, which is either my own resistance, my own ignorance, my own laziness, my own lack of belief in myself, or my own whatever. Like, you know, my dad is, growing up, I was Bob Downey's kid. Right. And my dad is and remains this amazing, uh, you know, groundbreaking counterculture, underground filmmaker, influenced so many other filmmakers and stuff. And so, Naturally, for me, there will be a desire to want to step into uh, writing and directing. I might have said this last time. My dad, who's quite something and I adore, says right to my face the following. Anybody can act. Few can direct. And nobody can write. <laughs> so That is great. Yes. So... Where I was coming from when I was growing up as a kid is the highest order of creativity is, are you a writer or are you not a writer? Because if you're a writer, you're doing something that nobody can do. Yeah. If you're a director, you're in kind of rarefied air. If you're an actor, you're doing something anybody can do. Do you sort of feel that way about it a little bit to this day? Give me any schmuck off the street, I will make them a film star in 36 hours. I'll take it. Okay. Let's try. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) 
You, you know, know what? I, I'm overestimating. <laughs> I, I, you know I, me well enough to know that that's not true. Yeah, with certain exceptions. Yeah. Sorry, Sam. Um, it's it's not a truth. It's a truism. Well, you know, we were talking on the phone a couple weeks ago, and you said that you know now that this whole Marvel thing has come to a close, you're sort of looking at maybe some sort of a change or two do something that you haven't had the opportunity to do because there's been so much opportunity. Yes. Realistically, to put it in a nutshell, I had an incredible 10-year run that was creatively satisfying, was very, very, very hard work, and I dug very deep. But I have not been forced to explore the new frontier of, of what is my creative and personal life after this. Yeah. It's always good to get ahead of where you're about to be. If you put eyes on, oh, that's going to be a big turn down there, spring of 19. I better, I better start psychically getting on top of that, you know, because I don't like the, I don't like the the metaphoric K-hole. I don't like folding up and molting and all that stuff, you know. And yet. It's always in the transitions between one phase and the next phase where people fall apart. So right. just as a matter of me just wanting to be a fit father, husband, and citizen, which, you know, in, roughly in that order, you got to put eyes down the road and say, I- I'm being irresponsible if I don't start saying, you know, what is after that. So part of it is there's a dependency. So you feel like you're in that transition right now. 100%. And there's always a dependency on something that feels like a sure thing. Like, it's the, tr- it's the closest thing I will ever come to being a trust fund kid. Sure, right. And also, there's, there's a real, like, bell-shaped curve. Initially, by creating and associating and synergizing with Tony Stark and the Marvel Universe and all this stuff, and being a good company man, but also being a little off-kilter and being creative and then getting into all these other uh, uh, partnerships, it was a time when... It's like, uh, what do they say, owners of pets start looking like their pets or whatever it is. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. This. Occasionally, you would pull back from it and go, all right, let me stop. Let me get off the teat of this archetype yeah. and let me see where I stand. And you can, you can feel really buffeted and you can get really spun out by it. It must feel a little strange to say, like, you know, what am I next or what? Well, here's the thing. I'll go back to Mr. Jellison and yeah. Sam Ohai. First thing you learn in theater arts, aesthetic distance. I am not this play I'm doing. I'm not a character in the Fantastics. I'm not Will from Oklahoma, you know? Aesthetic distance, it's the, uh, it's job one. I'm not my work. Yeah. I'm not what I did with that studio. I'm not that period of time that I spent playing this character. And it sucks because, you know, the kid in all of us wants to be like, no. It's always going to be summer camp, and we're all holding hands and singing Gumbaya, isn't it? It's like, no, no, snap out of it. I could see where there's a danger to that kind of transition, and I could also see where the Jodie Foster letter could again make sense of you know, learn from Chaplin, learn from that. 100%. And for me, the end of this, this run with Marvel is, oh yeah, it's a complete 180. It started off with someone who is absolutely self-centered, has more money than they could ever spend, is spiritually dead, and has no idea that they're about to go through a crucible that is going to put them in a position to be of service to their community. Boom. Then by the end of it, 
the last suit he has isn't even designed for him to be able to survive using it. The first suit is all about, will this get me and my ego and my precious physical frame out of this cave I'm in and into the desert where maybe the cavalry can come get me and bring me back to my stupid life. Right. Right? Right. The last one is not designed to be able to uh, do its job and have you make it past it. So that's the great, you know, Joseph Campbell mythology of like ultimately you go from refusing the call of being a serendipitous hero and by the end you're willing to give the ultimate sacrifice, your life, despite your family and your groundedness and your desire to not want to do that so that the community can thrive. But it would be really a pity if I couldn't ingest that and, and make, you know, and, and make adjustments moving forward so that I don't regress to old behaviors or, right. or, you know, or say, well, where's my next, where's my next massive franchise? Yeah, because that, <laughs> that is a losing game right there. I, uh, maybe, yeah. Although, I don't know. not in your case. No, it, <laughs> doesn't, it doesn't feel right. <laughs> also, sometimes, as you know, I'm a, I'm a, I don't want to say I'm a good boy, but... I wouldn't say that. Thank you. But the good boy note is, I, it's not that I want to do what's expected of me. It's that I listen to feedback, and while that's not what guides my decision-making process, I sometimes get a little daunted. People are like, well, now that he's done with this Iron Man thing, we really look forward to seeing what he's going to do next. Right. And I go, all right, wait a minute. Well, does the good boy revert back to something he was doing before this? Because that's what people will know. What do they really mean? I guess the thing is, from the outside, the layman can say, hey, I get it, really big deal, sis booma, rah, 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 box office numbers, yeah. yay, Rotten Tomatoes, everybody likes you. Um, that's not why we like you. We like you, uh, we like anybody, why do I, I like people is, uh, is because without projecting too much onto you, I like, I like the essence of what I think it is you're doing what you do to begin with anyway. So it's like with right. you. You are not your accomplishments. Unfortunately. <laughs> but it's the same thing, you know? Yeah, but it's also there, that takes the pressure away, too. Sure, and with you with this show, and I've seen a bunch of the other folks that have, have, have done off-camera with you, I see other people on your show and I go, wow. I mean, they really answered the tough questions, and they really had a point of view about this stuff. And, and what did I do? I kind of ran my mouth and told some stories and told him I was going to walk out and walk up to the camera. I don't know. I was kind of fucking around trying to entertain myself, but I was open and honest. But I think that we all, we all, it's so easy for me to reach out into an interaction between two people that I know or don't know and go, oh, that's where I see, I really admire what I'm witnessing, you know? I think that's part of something too, like it's hard to be a good actor if you're not a good fan. Well, if you're not interested arts. and curious about other humans too, right? Right. That too. Can't be a good I actor. I have a passing interest in others, <laughs> which uh, has sufficed to now. You know what? I think that that's a front. I think that the reason that I enjoy working with you so much and I enjoy the work you do so much is because you spend a tremendous amount of time trying to solve the puzzle of <laughs> what makes everything tick and not just looking in the mirror and, and trying to... Well, there's some of that. You know, I, I do yeah. see that, and that's probably vulnerable for you, but... They don't call me Bobby Two Cups for nothing. <laughs> in fact, they don't even call you Bobby Two Cups. Mm -mm. 
Let's end on Susan. No. Please. We met, before you met Susan, actually. And Correct. We met on a sketcher's job yeah, forever no, ago. The best. When you were kind Boy, of I like... that gig, by the way. Yeah, I got the sense that you, that was like the first time out of the troubles. Yeah, and I want you to know that after taxes and commissions, 88% of the money went to the IRS, like <laughs> my dad warned me, and I'm glad I was able to give it to them because I, uh, I was in arrears, so to speak, and we met on that job. That's right, we did. Suffice to say that was pre-Susan. Yes. And, and then I think the next time we hung out, you had, you had just met her or just started... Infiltrating her? Yes. Her systems? Yes. Her and, defenses? And I didn't know this until I did read a little this week about her. I think she was valedictorian of her high school. I didn't know that she was this structured, incredibly organized person who had no experience or or history with any kind of addiction or anything like this. No. And I also didn't Thank know she God. turned you down twice. I know. And I guess if, if I had one question to ask about her, it was, what does she see in you? No, <laughs> it, what, we, what were you drawn to about her? Because so many of your choices previous to her yes. were not self-empowering. 100%. They um, were self-destructive. Yeah, well I was talking to my shrink on the ride down here today. And uh, as usual, the topic of the day is the topic it always is, which is we don't really know what we're doing when we're doing it. And if we get comfortable with that, then we're going to be less uh, shocked by the awful results. Yeah. You know, so I, here's all I'll say. You want to talk about validation and mentors and, and people who have been with me at, at critical times. I mentioned some male directors. All of them together could not hold a candle to the power of partnership when you find somebody who without meaning to, you just kind of get each other and then you kind of, you cash, you cash in all your chips and you say, we're going to do this difficult thing, which is called relationship building and being in the same industry and all that stuff. But it's this thing of, it's the greatest mystery in life, you know? And I've had previous administrations. And between the two of us, there's been this creative engine of dialogue and discussion, and for me, just self-betterment. Because she's the only person in my entire life and career who I can nail it on a take. And I look over at the modern, she's there just like, you had come, take your come out, or <laughs> whatever, you know? It's not that she doesn't give me validation, it's that she does not do what everyone else has always done, which is thought. I need to be taken care of, I need to be validated, I need to be compensated for, I need to this and that. She just... She doesn't treat you like a child. Correct. And I'm acting like one. I just get the sense that you, when you found her, you found something that, that for the first time was worth more than all of you in the early in this conversation you described how sexy it was to go to the dark side oh yeah and i think she was probably if i'm i'm projecting but i'm asking you if this is also true also sexy also very sexy but the first person that could overwhelm that sexy darkness and yeah. like is it valid to say that she kind of saved your life in some ways well here's the great thing 
really any great partner holds their space and lets you fish yourself out of the chasm with a kind of benevolent neglect, which is saying, I can't do this work for you because it doesn't work if I take credit for it. Now, you might be right. I might, I might have been dead as a doornail in Ojai if I hadn't met her, who knows? But again, what's really cool to me, and I, I strive to be this in my work, in my, in my personal life, I try to be this as, as a dad. Without being rigid, I try to just hold my space so that it's something that is consistent enough for someone else to rely on and have a deep abiding trust in. If I'm completely uh, trustworthy, if my word is bond, and if I suit up and show up no matter what, and you can count on me, that gives the others so much freedom because they're not having to entangle with my inconsistency or my neurosis or my need, you know? Yeah. Here, here's what I'll say, this is, this is it, dude, this is definitive. If anything, movie saved my life because she saw me in weird science and at the time I had a space between my teeth and she had a space between her teeth. We wound up both getting them filled in because that's just what you did in the late 80s. And, but she looked at me in weird science. Her first thought of me was like, oh my God, he's like me. He has a space between his teeth. It's okay that I have a space between my teeth. Really? Yes. When she was what, 13 or something? Yes, which is even, which Weirder. is just the greatest. <laughs> yeah. Now we know it all. Can I please come back for episode 437? Yes. Okay, I should have it all together by then. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for I being you, the fifth guest and the 200th guest. Thank you for legitimizing the show. It helps that you're good at it. You can edit that out too. Take a compliment, will you? You're actually pretty good I'm at I'm taking it. We'll see. Thank you. All right. Hey folks, that's our show, and that's our season, and that's our 200th episode. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I'm not going to tell you to go see Adventures Endgame, because you already did. Instead, I'm going to talk a little bit about the experience of what it's been like to do 200 episodes of this show. If you told me four years ago that we would get to this number, I wouldn't have believed it possible. In fact, I still consider it quite an accomplishment just to have gotten 200 people to drive all the way to Santa Monica and spend an afternoon with us, knowing the traffic that awaits them as they head back towards the 405, let alone some of the most iconic and successful artists of my lifetime. We started this show in the reception area of my old studio, which had a seedy alley entrance and multiple roof leaks. Luckily, it doesn't rain too often in Santa Monica. The back wall of the set was the bathroom, and we often had to suspend filming due to truck and traffic noise in the alley. From those humble beginnings, we have managed to grow what started out as a complete experiment into a fairly respectable TV show and podcast. And believe it or not, we get more offers for guests than we have room for. Who would have thought? We are so lucky to be able to do this show and that we have found an audience in both the podcast and broadcast worlds. I'm so grateful to DirecTV's audience network for taking on this show when it was still finding its way and for continuing to bring us back and support us and play our episodes multiple times a week. They allow us such freedom to make this show whatever we want it to be, and they send it out to the world in gorgeous high-definition black and white. I'm also grateful to everyone that works on this show. We are lucky enough to have a staff that believes in what we are doing, and that remains passionate about what we are putting out there in the world. Crawford Chippy is our producer, but he does so much more. 
His attention to detail, patience with the process, and desire for the show to be great is invaluable, and we couldn't do it without him. Michaela Galvin, our graphic designer, is so much more than that. She is literally the do-it-all of the operation, working with cameras, design, research, writing, and editing. And Sasha Snow is our studio manager, and she manages to keep everything running, everyone fed, every piece of correspondence in order, and every order filled. She is the unflappable octopus in the hot seat of mission control. Kara Johnson is our transcriptionist, and she has listened to and written down every word said on this show from the beginning. She has deciphered different accents, interpreted low talkers, and made sense of every obscure reference ever uttered. And somehow she does it all at lightning speed. I want to make special mention of Nathan Shields, our sound man and editor. Yes, most shows would have a sound man and an editor, and those would be two different people. But Nate started with us on episode one, and he's been here for every single show. About three years in, he told us boldly that he could edit the show as well as record it. And, well, he was right. Nate is the beating heart of off-camera, and we wouldn't have a show without him. When you see a light glowing from inside the frosted glass front of our building, late into the night, that is Nate churning out another episode. And the best thing about him is that he gets excited about every single episode. So it is not only my 200th episode, but it is Nate's as well. And I am more grateful for him than he will ever know. Except he's sitting right here now recording this, so I guess you know, Nate. Thank you from the bottom of my heart. (laughs) This episode is the official final episode of season 11. We are all taking a short summer break, and then we'll be back August 22nd with more new episodes and a pretty surprising and exciting first guest, if I do say so myself. Thank you all for tuning in, and have a great summer. See you next time, off camera.